the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. We have full lines. I'm going to try and take as many calls uh, as possible. So let's go right to the caller. Let's see who's up. George, welcome to the program. Hi, George. Uh, hi. Uh, I have a question about um, John 10 and the interpretation of apparently he's referencing uh, Psalm 82 uh, to the Pharisees. And I uh, was wondering what your thoughts are about what he's trying to tell the Pharisees there. Yeah. So what what you're talking about in John chapter 10, um, you're talking about you are gods. Is that the one you're talking about? Right. Which, which yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that part of what's, what's happening in the text is, remember, Jesus is claiming to be God. And in, in John chapter 10, the, so the events of the first half of the chapter in verses 1 through 21 are taking place right after the casting out of the man in chapter 9, verse 34, while the teachings in the last half of the chapter are taking place two or three months later. And so the entire chapter is tied together by the symbolism of the shepherd and his sheep. And and he's talking about being the door, and he's talking about being the shepherd. Um, and in Psalm 82, um, sheep are clean animals, and Christians have been cleansed from their sin. And then the Jews proved their unbelief by trying to kill Jesus. And his reference in quoting Psalm 82, 6, if Jehovah called earthly judges Elohim, then surely he could call himself the son of God. Now, what I'm thinking in part is that um, these judges are acting in the position of God by the authority of God. So is he claiming that human beings are, in fact, little gods? No. I think that in order to understand the word Elohim, we have to understand it in its context. And in the context, um, human beings are spirit beings. But this is different from Jesus. He isn't just simply a spirit being. He's claiming to be God. And um, and that's going to rub them the wrong way. Right. Um, yeah, I have heard the interpretation before, and um, I think it, it came up, I forget exactly um, who was propounding that in like maybe the second century AD, but um, I feel like there, uh, there has been another even more popular interpretation, especially like second temple period of the divine council worldview. Do you uh, know anything about yeah, that? Yeah, I'm familiar, I'm familiar with the divine council worldview of, of Michael Heiser. And I think Michael Heiser gets it right when he says that Elohim, that word, 
can mean any number of things depending on the context. So it can mean the God of the the Bible, the self-existent God, but it can also mean spirit beings, Psalm 82. It can mean human beings depending on the context. So if God, if Jehovah called earthly judges Elohim, then surely he can call himself the son of God. Now, so what, what I think he's basically saying is that it's not outrageous for him to claim to be God. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, the only, uh, the other thing I was wondering is, uh, it, <clears throat> uh, really what the real question is, is, was Jesus trying to tell them that, he was in that divine council before he came to earth or yeah i don't i don't know that we could go there but i it it's not it's not unthinkable in other words uh if we if we take uh heiser's logic and we go is there a council whereby the spirit beings, if if we could use that term, and I'm and I'm using, and I was I'm glad you've asked uh, to asked about this because I wanted to talk about the hierarchy of angels anyway, um, and because I got a call yesterday where a person asked me the question, if there's a hierarchy of angelic beings, are there is there a hierarchy of demonic beings, and I don't think that that's out of the question. Um, but again, think piggybacking on 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 um, Heiser's thoughts on that subject in Psalm eighty two. If if Jesus is a preexistent spirit being, and I believe that he is, according to the Bible, I believe that he is a preexistent spirit being. But I also believe he is the second person of the Trinity who takes a a, a second nature, a human nature and dwells among us, if you will. So if that's the case, then of course he is a, a, a part of the divine council in the sense that he's the sovereign king of the universe. So in, in my view, the spirit realm and the spirit beings don't operate in a democratic fashion. I think that they operate in what I would call a benevolent dictatorship where God is, in fact, supreme, but does that mean he ignores or dismisses uh, other spirit beings' insights, input, and, and, and um, how, how, how else can, can we... You know, there was a crazy um, episode of Star Trek where there, you have this being, he's called Q, and Q makes the remarkable statement, you know, when you are... A supreme being, um, you don't really look for uh, guidance from other beings. But I think it's possible that the God of the Bible is, in fact, interested in friendship and fellowship with the beings that he's created. Well, uh, thank you so much for that answer. Um, so I, I think originally you were kind of saying that you believed or we're going with the assumption that Psalm 82, um, God is addressing the judges of the earth, like earthly, like men, actual men. We know that we know that he is, because don't you remember at the end of the passage where he says, but you will die like men. Right. Uh, 
I've heard people say though, if if people if you know every man knows they're gonna die, so maybe he was talking to angels or something, you know. Well, no, no, because see, and that's the difference. Angels don't die. That's the point. Angels are eternal beings. So when you when you have angelic confrontations, if you will. And and so in, in verse 6 where it says, I said you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. Verse 7, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So So pause and think about that for just a moment. When he says, I said you are gods, is he making reference to angelic beings? No, he's making reference to human beings. Verse 7, but you shall die like men. The reason why angelic beings can't die, and that's the reason why hell exists. Remember that hell is created for the devil and his angels. So what do you do with a being that can't die? You have to quarantine him forever. Uh, thank you. That is amazing and very clear, and I appreciate I hope favorite. that was—well, no, thanks for calling, and I so appreciate your question and your in, input. Hey, thank you so much. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. 303 873 I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Happy to take your call. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. John, welcome to the program. Hello, sir. How are you? Doing good. Awesome. I have a question for you. It's it's partially related to your last caller, at least the discussion you had with him. Uh, uh, Towards the end there, you were talking about how Hell is something that was originally created by God for Satan and his demons, and right. since they're That's spirit beings, they uh, they need an eternal place to go since they can't they don't have a physical death. And so, right. um, my question is, um, I recently saw a movie called Hell and Mr. Fudge, and it's about a pastor by the name of Edward Fudge who wrote a book called The Fire That Consumes, and he's got an alternative view of hell based on the uh, interpretation of the Greek word aeonion, which means to the age of the ages. Sure, and So sure. I was it's, just wondering if you sure. knew anything about that author or I, I actually theology. do. Yeah, I actually do. And the, the reason why I dismiss what he says is because aeonios, he rightly says, can mean a long time, but it can also mean eternal. So fudge is real... Um, question, if you will, is, is hell really eternal? Mm-hmm. And of course, what to me is, a, is an interesting, interesting thought is the passage that's given by Jesus himself in, in, mm-hmm. in Matthew um, chapter, I want to say 25, when he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's another passage where Jesus says in Matthew twenty five forty six, 46, he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So imagine mm-hmm. I made the argument, well, 
the the punishment is temporal and the life is temporal mm-hmm. but the same so word my, my is used the same word aeonios is used in that one verse matthew 25:46 right well my understanding of the interpretation of aeonios is that it it means to the age of the ages and that that can be used for uh, to describe an age and that an age can have and it can be an indefinite period of time. It could be a long period of time or a, or a short period of time. And and when you put it in that phrase to the age of the ages, that seems to imply a finite period of time. But, the, well, you know, guess, it, it's unspecified. I, right. And I guess the way I would answer that is the same way I did with the last caller when we're talking about the word Elohim. That mm-hmm. that means a spirit being, and depending on which context it's being used, it might be a reference to the the self-existent God of the Bible. It might be a reference to other kinds of spirit beings, and it might even be a reference, like in Psalm eighty-two, to human beings. So mm-hmm. again, to to your point, depending on the context, are there ages? And I think that the answer in context is yes. So imagine that there is a dispensational age. Um, I'm thinking of covenants in the Old Testament where Mm -hmm. Jesus says the old covenant has passed away. He goes, you you remember on the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks and praise. He took bread and he broke it and he said, take it, eat it, all of you. And then he says, this is my body, which will be broken. And then he says, take the cup and drink it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which blood is shed for you. It's the everlasting covenant. So pause and just think about that for just a moment. It implies that there was an age, but then he applies a new age, the, the, the age of the new covenant of his sacrifice. When will that age end? When will it come to fruition and never, ever, ever be necessary ever again? I think we could make an argument that it will take place in in the eternal state. So I think that, so, so pause and just think about this for just a moment. Imagine, mm-hmm. let's just take Fudge's argument and other people's argument at face value and say, does Fudge believe that hell is real? Yes. Yes. Yes, he does. Does he believe it's a place of torment and punishment? Yes. Yes. Does he believe that it lasts forever and ever? It depends. On what? On the the, the context of who it's being applied to. So, yeah, so, so, yeah, so think about that for just a moment. So imagine uh-huh. you're you're living in a world where that I've already alluded to that Satan and his angels are eternal creatures that can't die. Mm-hmm. Are human beings eternal creatures that can't die? Our spirits are. I think we die in the sense of a physical death on the planet Earth, but there's right. something immortal and eternal about every single human being. Every single human being is eternal and immortal, period. So, uh, right, so well, look, look at the, uh, here's our options, that, that, that a human being is annihilated or ceases to exist. Can we make mm-hmm. a compelling argument 
that a human being will cease to exist or be annihilated? I mean, not from my understanding of the Bible, since we not were created in the image yeah. of God. Yeah, not from my understanding spirit. of the Bible. So imagine, again, now a person's lost, if you will, or or unsaved, if you will. So, mm-hmm. so the other option is that there's some sort of purgation or there's something that, that people call um, um, post-death salvation. Um, is there anything in the Bible that indicates that you can be saved after you die? That I don't know. Well, I think that there's a good argument that can be made that that's not possible. Now, people have mm-hmm. made the argument, you know, they'll cite passages like in Colossians chapter 2 about reconciliation. Um Famous universalists like, um, oh, what is that guy's name? He wrote The Shack. Um, mm-hmm. He he basically taught universalism, that, that God will ultimately reconcile even Satan and his angels, and um, that there will be a, a universal reconciliation that takes place, so that hell is in fact temporary. Um, mm-hmm. But again, my reading of of the scriptures don't seem to indicate that, that there's no post-salvific moment when the Bible says it's appointed once for a person to die and then the judgment. And so mm-hmm. is that judgment a permanent judgment? And so we're back to Matthew 25, 46, then they, the unsaved, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So I think I think you really have to read into the text way more than it's it's saying to imply that it's it's not eternal punishment. So imagine I'm I'm looking at Matthew twenty five, forty six and I say, then they, the unsaved, will go to temporal punishment but the righteous to temporal life. There's nothing in the text that would lead me to that inclu- to that conclusion. And again, even when you look at the adjectives that are associated with it, both in Matthew 25 and in Mark 9:44, look what it says, eternal fire, unquenchable fire. This but if is, it's using the, the term aeonios, it, it, then it could mean age long. So l- let's go there. Fire. Yeah, let, let's go there for a moment. Yeah, it's age-long fire. How long is that? It, it depends on the age. I think what it depends on is a is a per- person's deep desire for it not to be true, that it can't possibly be true. But the other alternative is, what if it, what if it is true? Right. That's why we're talking about time. <laughs> hey, exactly. Thank, thank you for your call. Hey, welcome back. We've had great calls. If you'd like to call me, it's 303-873. I've got open lines. I know that some of you have been calling in and haven't been able to get through, but now would be a great time to call 303-873-1935. I have open lines. I stumbled onto a article that's posted at CBN. This is, of course, the Christian Broadcasting Network, and uh, Steve Warren has posted this 
awful article um, that a Nevada pastor was fatally shot. Why? He got into a disagreement with his neighbor. So according to the article, it says a North Las Vegas pastor was fatally shot Friday after he was involved apparently in an alleged disagreement with a neighbor who lived in the same condominium complex. Nicky or Nick Davy, 46, he served as a pastor of operations at Grace Point Church in North Las Vegas. He was taken to a hospital, died from his injuries, according to a local television outlet. And the outlet reported that an unidentified woman was also taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. And according to the North Las Vegas police, they arrested somebody named Joe Junio on charges of murder, attempted murder. He was charged with uh, with, uh, child abuse and child neglect and discharging a firearm where a person might be uh, endangered. And so, again, it's unclear what led to the shooting, but there is a disagreement how it happened and how it turned it into a major big deal. But the the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up is because we're living in such a violent time where things could go bad at a moment's notice. And uh, according to the Roy's report, during the Sunday service, Ty Neal, who is pastor of Preaching and Vision, told the congregation, we've lost a brother, a pastor, and a friend. And he urged church members to, again, support one another and worship the Lord and grieve together. And I'm looking at a picture of the pastor and he looks fairly large and fairly fit. And so um, it's just tragic. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you'd like to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. And... Um, You know, obviously, I've been talking a little bit about coincidence, but we're going to move the conversation in a different direction here, hopefully with your calls, 303-873-1935. Like I said, I wanted to uh, focus um, more and more on the person of Jesus um, and on the Bible in our conversations, and of course, one of the things that um, that I find very, very interesting is how so many people think that certain kinds of doctrines are negotiable, that it doesn't really matter what you believe. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is revisiting, of course, the virgin birth. Um And is it to be understood literally? Now, obviously, there are those people who don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. But the Bible teaches the virgin birth. The New Testament records the fact that God became a human being, a man, and that that means was accompanied by a virgin birth. 
And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the very first, what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the, the pre-evangelism, where the Lord promises and says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the seed of the woman that's referred to here is the prediction of a Messiah and deliverer. And it's interesting that it was to be from the seed of the woman. And this gives us the first hint at the virgin birth. But in ancient times, it's interesting to me is that process of ovulation wasn't known in antiquity. And so seed uh, obviously is a, is, is, was, was thought to come through male lineage. So as the Old Testament history begins to unfold, it becomes clear that the Messiah would be virgin born in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now pause and think about it. If it just says young woman shall conceive, that's not a sign. It's not, it's not a sign that, a woman can get pregnant, but it is a sign that a virgin can get pregnant. There's been a lot of controversy over the Hebrew word Alma, which is used in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You know, does it mean a virgin or a young woman? And rather than go into a lengthy discussion about that, let me just point out that from the original Hebrew into the Greek, when 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 the scholars translated the Hebrew into what's called uh, the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, they translated in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, they used the Greek word parthenos. If they wanted to, if they thought that the meaning was a young woman, they would have used an entirely different word. Um but they don't. They use the Greek word, parthenos, which means virgin. It can only mean virgin. And so we we observe that before the time of Jesus, the people understood the passage in Isaiah to mean virgin birth. The Greek-speaking Jews in Alexandria understood it to mean virgin 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program. And of course, Matthew understood that completely in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, which says, and I quote, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and shall bring forth a son 
and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35 records the same account. And some people have argued, well, that the two of the gospel writers, Mark and John, don't record the virgin birth. And that their argument is, well, the reason why they don't record it is because they didn't know anything about it. But that argument is fairly unconvincing for several reasons. And I'll give several of those reasons when we come back. And so I'll also talk a little bit about the importance. But again, if you want to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And of course, love hearing from you. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, the number is 303 I've been talking a little bit about uh, the importance, if you will, of the virgin birth. And uh, for the p- people who argue that two of the gospel writers, Mark and John, that they don't record the virgin birth because they didn't know anything about it. And um, that argument is unconvincing for a, a couple of reasons. The first being each gospel writer addresses his work to a particular audience. And because he's addressing a different audience, he's recording a different aspect of the life of Christ. So Mark is emphasizing that Jesus is the servant of the Lord and that he can do the job God has ordained him to do. Nothing is said in regard to Jesus' um, birth or early years because it's not relevant to, to, to Mark's purpose. That's different from Matthew. In Matthew, Jesus has to be the king, and he has to be the king by birth, and he has to be the king also by prophecy. Now, um, the same is true of John's gospel. John emphasizes that Jesus is God from all eternity, but the gospel begins in eternity past with Jesus already on the scene. And so you'll remember John in the opening chapter of John chapter 1 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So consequently, he's emphasizing the sublime truth that God came into the world, not the manner in which he came. And the second reason is even though Mark and John don't expressly articulate that Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't teach something contrary to that. They simply don't give details concerning the birth. And then again, of course, an argument from silence is usually not a very strong argument because someone doesn't state a fact, doesn't necessarily follow that the person was unaware of the fact. It just means that the person for whatever reason, doesn't choose to mention that. And so, again, it can be remembered that John's gospel implies knowledge of the virgin birth without expressly 
stating it. And in John chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with your Father. And the Jews, of course, responded to this by saying that Abraham was their father. And then they made the following accusation to Jesus. They said in John 8, 41, we're not born of fornication. In a very, that's a, that's a rub. That's a slight. That's an accusation. They're accusing him of being an illegitimate child. And this shows that they were aware of the fact that Mary had become pregnant before her consummation to Joseph. This gives further credence to the account of the virgin birth as recorded by Matthew, which states that Joseph considered divorcing her privately. And when he discovered that she was pregnant and recording the dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders, John implies that the birth of Jesus wasn't ordinary, but extraordinary. It came about through unusual circumstances. And so both the testimony of the Old and the New Testament is that Jesus, the predicted Messiah, was born of a virgin. And of course, the gospel writers are judicious in their wording to maintain the doctrine of the virgin birth. In the genealogy of Jesus, Luke says that Jesus was the son, and then a parenthetical note, as was supposed of Joseph, Luke chapter 3, verse 23. In the ESV, that's the way it's, it's translated, in his genealogy, Matthew carefully avoids calling Joseph the father of Jesus, but says Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. So again, like I said, the, the virgin birth was predicted in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4. It's quoted again in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. And like I said, the there seems to be an allusion to the virgin birth in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when it uses the term, the seed of the woman would destroy the serpent. But the Bible clearly teaches the pre-existence of the Son of God. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the child who is born is also the son who is given. And of course, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it teaches the pre-existence uh, and virgin birth of Jesus. God sent his son, born of a woman. And the virgin birth is important because this is the means by which the word becomes flesh in John chapter 1, verse 14. So Jesus has a second nature, a human nature. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the incarnation is when the eternal Son of God 
takes on human flesh. But this is an important theological point. He does this without losing any of his divine nature. He adds a human nature. And that miraculous history-changing event takes place in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this immaterial, the spirit, and the material, Mary's womb. They're both involved, just like in creation. The Bible says in Genesis 1, the earth was formless and empty and dark. And Mary's womb was an empty, barren place. And just like in creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and the Spirit of God comes upon Mary. Only God, only God can make something out of nothing. Only God can perform the miracles of creation, the miracle of the incarnation and the virgin birth. So this is some of the reasons why this is so important. 303-873-1935. And of course, the virgin birth is important because it preserves the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. His physical body is received from Mary as her biological child, but his eternal, holy nature is in his possession from eternity past. And so it shouldn't shock you, shouldn't surprise you that his enemies denied his virgin birth. And it shouldn't shock you or surprise you that many liberals still do that. They went so far as to accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. That means a person of a mixed race. And those today who would deny the virgin birth contradict the teaching of Scripture. And so thanks for joining me. Hopefully, prayerfully, the Lord willing, I'll be back. Take your calls, answer your questions in the not-too-distant future. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks, Jim. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.